Welcome to Thriller Vault, where thriller writers tell their favorite stories. I'm your host, Phil Williams, and I'm here with my co-host, action-adventure author, Luke Richardson, who's in sunny Mexico at the moment. Uh, noisy, sunny Mexico. How are you doing, yeah. Luke? <laughs> I'm very well, thank you. I'm in Oaxaca at the moment. Just awesome. enjoying life, doing some writing, drinking some mezcal, and eating lots of tacos. So not Fantastic. too bad. Fantastic. <laughs> thank you for uh, uh, coming, coming back for the... Uh, show despite your vacation i hate to interrupt no, you i appreciate it and yeah. writers are never on vacation are we <laughs> no that's true it's all it's all fodder for your stories right yeah that's right <laughs> okay well before we get into the story i'd like to quick mention that luke and i have tons of audiobooks for sale if you guys want to hear more of our stories uh, outside of the uh, thriller vault stories just search your favorite uh, audiobook retailer for luke richardson or phil m williams so I titled this story, We're All Criminals. According to civil liberties attorney Harvey Silverglate, the average American commits three felonies per day. With thousands of federal, state, and local laws, not even attorneys are aware of them all. Oftentimes, laws are so all-encompassing that people commit crimes simply by living their life, sometimes by doing nothing at all. I found this out the hard way. In 2008, I sold my landscaping business with the dream of living in the country and living a more sustainable lifestyle. In the summer of 2009, Denise and I found a beautiful south-facing uh, six-acre property in rural Pennsylvania, surrounded by farms and with a great view. The property was once a commercial orchard and at the time was being cut for hay. We purchased the property and built a passive solar home complete with a greenhouse, root cellar, solar panels, insulated concrete walls, and geothermal climate control. We purposely purchased the land outside of an HOA and in a rural farming community so we'd be left alone. I had plans to grow a large garden and raise some chickens for eggs and meat. From 2009 to 2012, I had done exactly that, planting tons of fruit trees, nut trees, gardens, and sculpting the land to better harvest water and nutrients. In 2013, I had plans to install a food forest, timber forest, and a wildflower meadow in the large pasture area. I had designed my property using permaculture principles and techniques. In short, permaculture is the development of agricultural systems, agricultural ecosystems intended to be sustainable and self-sufficient. Therefore, I let the pasture filled with clover and alfalfa grow a little taller than I had in the past to add biomass and nitrogen to prepare the soil for the new trees and wild, wildflower meadow. My plans were about to be derailed. In early June, I received a phone call from a telemarketer seeking donations for the police department. I was annoyed with their use of intimidation to solicit money. At the time, I was learning about propaganda for a nonfiction book I was writing called The Propaganda Project. From my research, I recognized the telemarketer's technique. The telemarketer used a very effective propaganda technique called the fear appeal. Fear appeals are effective because they divert our attention from careful examination of the issue to the fear itself, specifically ridding ourselves of the fear. According to Pratkinis and Aronson in their book, Age of Propaganda, the fear appeal is, the, is most effective when, number one, it scares the hell out of people. Number two, it offers a specific recommendation for overcoming the fear-arousing threat. Number three, the recommended action is perceived as effective for reducing the threat. And number four, the message recipient believes that he or she can perform the recommended action. The telemarketer said, I'm Frank White from the North Leesville Police Department. 
My stomach turned immediately as fear washed over me. My fear was relieved when the man chuckled and said, Don't worry, you're not in trouble. The man went on to ask me to buy tickets to the policeman's ball. I said, No, you already get my money through taxation. Police officers risk their lives every day, the man said. You want to support our dedicated officers, don't you? The telemarketer gained instant credibility when he said he was from the police department. He appealed to my fear by simply saying he's from the police. He immediately relieved my fear by telling me not to worry that I'm not in trouble. This made me immediately more compliant. When I said no, he used guilt to influence me by pointing out the ultimate sacrifice police officers make every day, the risking of their lives. I didn't buy any tickets, but I felt compelled to, and I'm sure they do quite well in their telemarketing techniques. It felt like a legal shakedown with fear and guilt that could be relieved with a simple purchase. It may have been a total coincidence, but a couple of weeks after my decline of the telemarketer, I received a notice from the local police. The notice said, It was recently brought to the attention of the police department that the property you own or occupy is in violation of the North Leesville Township Ordinance Chapter 10, Section 101, which covers the area of grass, weeds, and other vegetation. The ordinance addresses this area in part by indicating that grass, weeds, and other vegetation may not exceed six inches in height. It is the responsibility of the owner or occupant of the property to trim, cut, or remove all grass, weeds, or other vegetation and maintain the property in that fashion. You will have seven days from the date listed above to complete the work, or the township may be obligated to take further action as outlined in the ordinance. This would include ongoing fines and possibly other appropriate action to bring the property into compliance. The township will cut the grass and a lien will be placed against the property. No further warnings will be issued in regard to this ordinance and future violations may result in a citation being filed. I look forward to you complying with this this request to avoid any future hardship. Should you have any questions, feel free to contact me at the above number, uh, Lieutenant Dan Willis. I had no way of knowing if the township police were targeting me or not. I'd like to think not, but the timing of the notice concerned me. I wasn't aware that there was a law against having your pasture a certain height. I erroneously thought that I was safe outside of an HOA. The notice required the work to be done seven days from the date of the notice, which was June 18th, 2013. I didn't receive the notice in the mail until the evening of the 22nd. They essentially gave me two business days to conform, or they would mow and place a lien on my property. I have a complicated, interconnected design with ponds, swales, 2,000 trees and shrubs, gardens, hugelkultur berms, beehives, chickens, and planned areas for food forests, timber forests, and a wildflower meadow. It would be impossible for someone to put a large machine on my property and know what to cut and what to leave. They would inevitably destroy everything I had built over the past five years, then place a lien on my property, forcing me to pay for their destruction of my land and hard work. The letter from Lieutenant Willis said I should call him if I had any questions, so I did. After I told him who I was, he replied, annoyed, what do you want? I wisely kept my cool. I explained it was not practical to maintain six acres like a suburban lawn and that my property had been cut for hay for decades. He said that my property was waist high and I needed to cut it, but he wouldn't be out there with a ruler. I got the impression that they wanted it to be shorter, but I wouldn't necessarily have to keep it mowed as often as a suburban lawn. I acquiesced and mowed it the best I could without destroying my plants and and trees. By the following spring, I had planted more trees and shrubs throughout my property. Some were growing on the berms of my swales and some were grown together the makings of young food forests. 
I planted a ground cover of clover, yarrow, and dill and chicory to provide nitrogen fixation, nutrient accumulation, and to attract beneficial insects. I mowed the ground cover a few times simply to give the young trees some light and to provide nitrogen fixation and biomass. The ground cover was typically a foot or so tall. I kept my pasture areas by the road mowed regularly to hopefully stop any complaints from people driving by. Other areas that were more hidden, I mowed infrequently to allow more bee forage and wildlife benefit. Toward the end of July 2014, an old Chevy S10 broke down along the road in front of my house. The owner of the truck pulled over just off the state road and parked it on my property. It sat there for a week and a half. I called the police and asked them if they could remove it. The officer told me to call a tow truck and recommended a company. He said it was my responsibility since it was on my property. A few weeks after I called the police about the broken down truck, someone banged on my front door. I was out at the time, but Denise was in our bedroom. She stepped into the loft area, which has a view of the side light windows at the front door. The man banged on the door again, hard enough that the door shook violently. Denise caught a glimpse of the man's muscled and tatted arm. She was afraid, so she didn't answer the door. When I came home, I found a business card for Officer Harris. One thing I've learned about the police, they never ring the door politely. Shortly thereafter, I received another notice in the mail about my grass and weeds that were too long. It seemed like quite a coincidence that, after each encounter with the police, a few weeks later, I received a threatening letter. Thankfully, Lieutenant Willis had retired over the winter, so I was hopeful that the new code enforcement officer would be more reasonable. I called Officer Harris and told him that I did not have grass and weeds that were too long. It was a living mulch and ground cover for a young forest. He seemed to be satisfied with that explanation. Yet, a few weeks later, I received another letter stating that I was violating the grass and weeds ordinance. The letter did reference our conversation, but it said that he would need to inspect the property. I met with Officer Harris at my house, and I was pleasantly surprised that he was friendly and respectful. I showed him around the property and explained the purpose of the long ground covers. I talked to him about the school groups I host and the benefit to my neighbors who used to be inundated with stormwater runoff before I installed the swales and trees. He said, not everyone likes what you're doing. He proceeded to tell me that, that they have one resident who drives around the township every year and takes down the address of every home in violation of the grass and weed ordinance. He's like a uh, mowing Gestapo. He then personally delivers the information to the police station. The police are then forced to enforce the rule. I argued that the rule is too subjective. The ordinance states grass, weeds, and other veg vegetation may not exceed six inches in height. I told Officer Harris that I could find grass, weeds, or other vegetation over six inches tall on just about every property in the township. He agreed with me and said he didn't have the time to prosecute everyone, even if he wanted to. He also told me that if there wasn't a complaint against me, he'd be fine with how I was maintaining the property. He thought my strategy of screening my property from the road with bamboo was a good one. As he was leaving, he told me that he would call me if there was anything I needed to do. At this point, I felt cautiously optimistic. A few weeks later, I received another letter stating that I was in violation. I was again given seven days to appeal, which was really four business days from the date I received the letter. I was disappointed that I didn't receive a call from Officer Harris ahead of time as he had promised. I had to schedule a hurried meeting with an attorney. I showed my new attorney the township ordinance I was being cited for. It said, 
No person, firm, or corporation owning or occupying any property within the township shall permit any grass or weeds or any vegetation whatsoever to grow or remain upon such premises so as to exceed a height of six inches, or to throw off any unpleasant or noxious odor, or to conceal any filthy deposit, or to create or produce pollen. Any grass, weeds, or other vegetation growing upon any premises in the township in violation of any of the provisions of this section is hereby declared to be a nuisance and detrimental to the health, safety, cleanliness, and comfort of the inhabitants of the township. Notwithstanding the above provisions, these provisions shall not be applied to those areas which are maintained, farmed, and used for agricultural purposes and to those areas when the township is, is conducting recycling programs. Notice the all-encompassing power of this law. Who doesn't have pollen-producing plants? My attorney thought we could argue that my property was being maintained, farmed, and used for agricultural purposes. It was, after all. He suggested that we appeal the decision. So he drafted an appeal that asked for the opportunity to personally appear before the Board of Appeals in order to explain our defense to the, to the suggested violation. I went to the township office to deliver the letter, and the office staff sent me next door to the police department. I went next door to the police department and spoke with the receptionist behind the bulletproof glass. I told her that I had an appeal for Officer Harris. She looked confused, as if appeals were not a normal occurrence. I didn't hear anything for almost a year. Then I received another notice, this one demanding a large sum of money for the hearing or for me to conform with the law. I paid the money and I was finally granted a hearing in September of 2015. I met with my attorney on my permaculture site 45 minutes before the hearing. He walked the grounds, asked me a few questions, and we went over the evidence we had prepared. He reiterated to me that this was high stakes. He didn't have to tell me. I knew if we lost, I would not be able to continue with the permaculture site I had devoted the last six years of my life to. The fines were several hundred dollars per day if I didn't comply. If I didn't comply and couldn't pay, they would take my home and property. Denise and I seriously discussed moving, but who would buy a property that faced police fines? On the way to the hearing, my wife Denise and I picked up one of our neighbors, Mark. Mark has the most adjoining property to mine. He's a good friend. Upon arrival, we loitered just outside the township building. A few friends and neighbors trickled in. The friends were mostly teachers that taught with Denise, but had also taken their students on field trips to our property. It was comforting to have supportive friends and neighbors like stacking the stands of a football game with home team fans. The room was set up with two rows of tables and chairs with a space down the middle forming an aisle. In front, there was a long table for the board and the township manager. Denise, myself, and my attorney sat in the first row on one side of the room. Friends and neighbors sat in the tables behind us in the same row. The township manager, the township solicitor, and a young man sat in the long table facing us. Officer Harris sat in front of the opposite row, like he was from a different family at a wedding. The officer was built like a linebacker, his arms covered in tattoos. Shortly before the hearing was to begin, two middle-aged gentlemen greeted, the, greeted Officer Harris with smiles and handshakes. I was concerned because I did not know who they were. Were they complaining residents? The township solicitor told the middle-aged men to take their seats at the long table. They were the board members. At first, I was relieved that they weren't complainers. Then I started to do the math. There were three board members, the township manager and the solicitor. The township manager and the solicitor would not be voting on my fate. That left the young man and the two middle-aged men who were chummy with Officer Harris to decide my fate. 
I could see us losing two to one before we pleaded our case. The township solicitor started the hearing with the following statement. This is the first time we've ever had a hearing disputing their universal property maintenance code. I wondered if I was the only one dumb enough to try. Officer Harris presented his case first. He had pictures of my property from August of 2014 and more pictures from September of 2015. We received copies of the pictures. Harris included pictures of other properties nearby with close-cut grass and orderly landscapes. Harris described them as neat and clean. I leafed through the photos and whispered to my attorney that I could explain the pictures. Officer Harris went on to testify that in August of 2014, he received a complaint from someone who told him that he should check out my address because it was, quote-unquote, all weeds. He stated that he met with me and I said it was a permaculture farm and that I was getting a lawyer to appeal. In my opinion, his statements about our meeting made it seem like I was dis- like I was dismissive and simply told him to back off. I did tell him that it was a permaculture farm, but I spent almost... 30 minutes with him explaining and showing him what things were and why plants were tall. I talked to him about the mixed polyculture plants growing under my trees and the clover and alfalfa living mulch. He went on to provide testimony that after I was cited, my property did not improve from one year to the next. I don't need a ruler to know that those weeds are longer than six inches, Officer Harris said. My attorney questioned him about the specific wording of the ordinance. Harris referred to the Universal Property Maintenance Code that had been adopted in 2006 by the township. I had previously provided my attorney with the weed ordinance from the township's website. I was being cited with the weed ordinance from the Universal Property Maintenance Code, not the weed ordinance from the township's website. My attorney asked if they had two weed weed ordinances. Officer Harris said they did. My head was spinning at this point. Our entire argument was that my property did not fall under the ordinance because it was maintained, farmed, and for agricultural uses. The Universal Property Maintenance Code did not provide that caveat. My attorney began to present our case by asking me a series of general questions, questions he already knew the answers to. He asked my name, when we had purchased the property, and what it was used for before we moved in. It was a commercial orchard, then a hayfield. The board asked me for a definition of permaculture. I said, Permaculture is a design science that seeks to design and implement self-sustaining and regenerative systems that provide for human, plant, and wildlife needs. Permaculture is guided by three ethics, care of the earth, care of people, and return of surplus. Where did that definition come from? The stocky, balding board member on the left asked. I replied, if you Google permaculture defined, you'll find many different definitions and variations of the definition I gave. I think the one I provided is a good one based on my work and study in the field. Is permaculture defined in the Webster's Dictionary, he asked. I don't think so, but I've never looked it up. My attorney asked me to stand and approach the board. He had Officer Harris's pictures in hand. Harris was also standing in front of the board. My attorney asked me questions about each of Harris's pictures. I explained the concept of a forest garden and the purpose of living mulch. Most of Officer Harris's pictures were from my Zone 1 garden, which is weeded heavily. Granted, it looks lush and overgrown, but if you know plants you'd recognize most things. Harris pointed to a vine in the picture. What's this? It's a grapevine, I replied. Officer Harris pointed to an enormous grass. What's this, he asked. Don't answer that, my attorney said. I answered anyway. It's Miscanthus sinensis, an ornamental grass. It's common in a lot of yards. My attorney submitted our own color photos in a binder for evidence. I had prepared captions for each photo. 
The first picture was a polyculture tree guild in front of my fish pond. It was a plum tree with oregano, comfrey, autumn olive, milkweed, alfalfa, clover, and nanking cherry growing in the understory. I explained to the board the concept of cooperative plant guilds, where plants help each other with pest control, pollinator attraction, and nutrients. I flipped the page of the binder and two pictures were revealed. One showed a skid steer dumping clay into the keyway of my future fish pond. The next showed the pond filling in the rain. Did you get a permit for that pond? The stocky board member on the left asked. I did. I had to provide a drawing and pay $300 and they never even showed up, I replied. That wasn't us, the, the female township manager said. I know it was the county conservation district. I turned the page again, and the next photo showed the pond more mature, with cattails bursting from the water. I explained to the board that without the water plants, the pond would be overtaken with algae. The next photo was taken from my bathroom window and showed swales, three ponds, a young food forest, and an older food forest. My attorney asked a few pointed questions about the living mulch under the trees. Is there any grass longer than six inches in height under those trees? The board member on the left asked. Yes, but it's impractical to mow, I replied. It's difficult for everyone. He frowned and pointed at the picture of my food forest. Are you growing a forest or a garden? They seem to have an issue with growing a forest. Call it what you want, I said, but I do harvest food from it. Do you ever mow under the trees? He asked. A few times when the trees were small to keep the clover from shading them out. I don't anymore. Then you have, then you have grass over six inches in height. Yes, but if I mow constantly, the only thing that survives is the grass. All those helpful guild plants don't, don't tolerate frequent close mowing. Have you had any complaints from your direct neighbors? The board member asked. No. It was just a busybody then, he said. Then he paused for a moment. The people in the audience, are they neighbors? Yes, I replied. The board then allowed each of my friends and neighbors to speak one by one. I felt very grateful as they each detailed in their own way how they loved what we were doing and felt it was a benefit to the community. After the audience spoke, my attorney flipped another page in the binder and asked me what was depicted. It's our wildflower meadow, I replied. The board members barely glanced at it. The member on the left said, I was on the other side, but he convinced me. I've seen enough. I'm ready to vote in favor of Mr. Williams. The other board members concurred. We won. Denise and I shook hands with everyone and thanked our friends and neighbors. Outside, I thanked my attorney. On the way to the car, my friend Mark grabbed me by the shoulders for a moment, and with a big smile, he said, You did it. How do you feel? I'm not sure, I replied. When Denise and I got home, I had mixed emotions. On the one hand, I was very happy and relieved to have the weight of the township off my back. But on the other hand, I felt empty and powerless. I knew how little power I had. This one little law that if applied to the letter could encumber nearly every person in the township. There are thousands of laws at the federal, state, and local level. Technically, we're all criminals. This gives tremendous power to the complainers in your community and to the police. Given that everyone is breaking the law, corruption through selective enforcement is always a serious danger. If the police in the township wanted to force me to leave my property, if they wanted to put liens that I couldn't pay, if they wanted to confiscate my property and take it, they certainly have the power to do that. I'm sure the government officials in the room thought that I should be grateful for their understanding, and I am, but I felt sad that I had to fight for the right to grow a healthy ecosystem on my own property. I felt sad that the default legally accepted property maintenance is one of dominance, pollution, and exploitation. 
A few days later, my attorney sent me the following letter. Dear Mr. and Mrs. Williams, I appreciated the, the opportunity to visit your property prior to the hearing. It was a most enlightening half hour. I am glad that last night we were able to remove the fate that has been hanging over your head in regard to the work that you have done on your property. I compliment both of you on your efforts to have people come to the hearing to support you. Their presence was very important. If you talk to them, please express my appreciation for them being there. The candor and forthrightness which you exhibited to the board convinced them that the imposition of silly language from an international property maintenance coach has no applicability to your home and the, and the project that you are undertaking. It is most unusual, and quite frankly, I cannot remember a time when in the middle of a hearing, a board who started out being totally against a project in the middle of the presentation decided to call it quits and tell you that you are correct. You should take that as a high compliment. I am sure that from time to time, I will come out and meander through your facility. Please don't get your bees after me. I have not read your book, Fire the Landscaper, but do intend to read it. Last night, I did, however, pick up a quote on page 133. Society grows great when old men plant trees whose shade they know they shall never sit in. How applicable that is not only to your landscape, but to life and society in general. For Denise and me, this was a happy ending. But we had the resources to hire the best attorney in our township. But it could have very easily gone the other way. The U.S. justice system is a human meat grinder where the average citizen can have their life turned upside down. In fact, one in three Americans will be arrested in their lifetime. The United States of America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, has the largest prison population of any nation and the largest in terms of percentage in the developed world. Shortly, shortly after the hearing, Denise and I invited our friends and neighbors over for a celebration cookout. Denise named it the Legal Weed Party. Everyone showed up that Saturday with their spouses and children. We ate homemade vegetable soup with all the ingredients coming from our garden. We had two pots, one with beef from our neighbor's cattle and the other for the vegetarians. We had locally made bread. We had apples from our trees with honey from the bees for dessert. Mark and Desiree's boys helped me harvest some ripe plums. Their reward was instant and delicious. When Denise and I moved here in 2009, our property was a degraded hayfield. We didn't have any friends. Uh, Mark and Desiree became great friends because we brought them uh, produce from our garden. We buy beef from Sue and Dennis, but they became friends because of our shared love of farming. Joe's a great guy. He doesn't garden, but he supports our right to do so. And if you ever need some obscure tool, he definitely has it. Adam and Tina, they have a wonderful young family and gardening is usually a topic of conversation. Denise and I have lived here for 14 years. The bamboo is 30 feet tall now. The fruit trees are mature. The forests are still young, but they're healthy and growing fast. If you step outside my house on a sunny day, you notice the birds immediately. When we first got here, there were no birds. Now we are inundated with birdsong. Even with the feral cats nearby, the birds still sing. We are a haven for amphibians and monarch butterflies and American chestnut trees. I've put thousands of hours of hard work into this land but it's given back far more. It's cured me of depression. It's given me food and medicine. It's given me friends and community. It's given me purpose. So Luke, do you think this was true, false, or somewhere in between? 
Oh, I'm certain that's true. It's got to be a true story because I've I've heard of your garden and your you can't even call it a garden, I suppose, your land before, and you've spoken of that and the passion at which you spoke of it there. Maybe think that that was true. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's, it's definitely all true. Even some of the even the exchanges were pretty accurate because I I had to write I wrote a lot of that because um, I added that to my nonfiction book, which is Fire the Landscaper. When I wrote Fire the Landscaper, I was sort of going through all this process. In this long three-year span, I had this hanging over my head, but I was, like I said, I was writing it. So the, a lot of the stuff was fairly accurate. And even in Fire the Landscaper, came, when it came out, I still didn't know what was going to happen. So I actually had a, a written a, a second edition after the hearing and everything else. So in the original copy, there was no, there was no resolution to what was going to happen. Um, but because uh, that, that didn't happen until, uh, you know, a couple, I think it was a year or two after I published. So, um, but anyway, yeah, it was a, it was a, an immense relief. And obviously my neighbor played a huge part in helping, helping it to be resolved in a, in a good way for me, I guess. Mm, absolutely. And I like the twist that you put on there. You've sort of taken the story to a sort of meta level and made it more philosophical, I suppose, is the idea. And, and I think that's, I think there's a there's a relevance there. I think in the modern world, everything is everything is angled around being a consumer of stuff, isn't it? And yeah. when you stand up and go, actually, I don't want to be a consumer of stuff. I want to do something else. Right. Things get a little bit more complicated. People don't tend to understand quite what you're doing. You know, <laughs> yeah. there seems yeah. to be a, it can be as little as someone not understanding what you're doing or thinking you're a bit weird, or as big as something that you've described there, where actually it was it was a very serious situation. Right. You know, and the, the interesting thing about the and I'm pretty yeah, well versed yeah, in the laws and the codes now from going through all this, and then also from my time as a landscaper is what is mandated and i've seen this in in my research for the book i saw i researched a lot of other abuses it was mine was very minor in comparison to what a lot of people have dealt with i've i there are cases of people going to prison going to jail for their lawns being too long um there was a guy in florida who um who i guess his lawn his sprinkler system had died, had broken and he did, couldn't afford to fix it and his, his lawn was brown or something, and the, and the HOA wanted him to resod his entire lawn. Of course, it was too expensive. He could afford it. He ended up um, being cited by the HOA, and then uh, he, couldn't, he couldn't pay. The, and they, basically, he ended up in jail, um, and he, he wasn't able to get out until they, he actually did what the Homeowners Association told him to do. And um, there's been plenty of cases where you've had people that have lost their homes because of things like long grass or because front yard gardens or because, um, you know, certain plants that they had planted were, you know, deemed illegal by the, either by the HOA or the town or the, or the local government. And everything is very arbitrary. There's so many rules and laws. And I think in a way they, they do this on purpose because they want to be able to enforce, they want to be able to enforce, enforce things how they see fit. So, you know, they don't want people, you know, doing things they don't want them to do with little loopholes. And if you look at it from the perspective of the legal system, their incentive is to um, write laws and enforce laws. And um, especially here in the United States, where we have a massive prison industrial complex, the only way to get more people into that funnel of the, the legal meat grinder is to make more laws. 
you know, when you have a population where basically one third of us are going to be arrested in our lifetime, we got, we got serious problems because I refuse to believe that 33% of us are criminals. I think that's absolutely ridiculous. Um, although technically we all criminals, like I said, depending do on you what think, your metric is. Do you think that's a particular case with a country as, si as the size of yours? I wonder coming from Great Britain where we've got 60 million people, you know, one of the big issues that we had with the European Union or people cited as one of the issues with the European Union is we were, we had all these laws that applied to us that weren't relevant because they right. were relevant to other countries within the EU. And, and whether or not it was a good reason to leave, I don't know. That's a different discussion. Right. But I wonder whether for you guys with 200 something million, whatever you've got, there always are going to be laws that are, you know, you're, you're still, the, the laws about grass still apply to you if you live in a Manhattan townhouse without a garden. You know? <laughs> right, right. Well, they, but, yeah. they are very, they're local, they're local to wherever you are. And you could have right, multiple, you could have a state and local laws. You could have, I mean, you could have multiple laws being applied to you. Like we have a, we have a township, we have a county and we have the state and they could literally have all three laws. You could be applied to all of them and the federal. So you could have, you have this, so you could have four different laws, layers of laws applied to you. Um, at any one time, wherever you are, and they could contradict each other. I suppose. Yeah, one could they say can. This, another could say that, and and the, it's the judge on that day who's got to decide which one is most applicable right. in that so, situation. Yeah. So if you think about it, um, if you are somebody who doesn't want to live exactly like everybody else, or, or if you're somebody mm -hmm. who wants to deviate in some way that's very different, the laws are very antiquated and they're not really caught up with what maybe wants somebody's. They're not able to, they're not actually maybe antiquated is the wrong word, although some laws are antiquated because they never take laws off the books. They just keep adding. But mm. really, maybe that way, the better word is they're not very dynamic. Whereas, yeah. you know, if you have these, these special situations where people are trying to do really great things, but they are, in fact, violating the law while doing something good. For example, I think about these people that, that um, often have problems feeding the homeless in certain cities where um, people go, you know, these, these wonderful people go down to the cities and bring food to the homeless. Well, in a lot of cities, that's illegal. And these people get cited for it and they get into big trouble for it. It's where the, the laws don't match morality. And I think people get that confused where they think that if something is illegal, then therefore it is bad. And if something is legal, therefore it is good. Although you can mm -hmm. analyze tons of laws, you know, the easy one to look at is obviously slavery used to be perfectly legal in, around the world. And it is still it is still legal in some places, um, yeah. and that's obviously immoral. Um, but there's plenty of other laws like that. You know, we have yeah, things. We have, we have, yeah, yeah, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, I can think of them now to do with the meat industry. It's perfectly legal to keep a thousand pigs in a in a in a barn oh, for sure, for sure. Time, but it's not moral, is it? You know, <laughs> no, right? Exactly, exactly. The ch the chicken industry is a horror show. Um, if yeah, you've ever, yeah, if you've yeah. ever been inside a chicken house, it's just absolute, it's a, it's a horror show for those animals. But I think the, the legal aspects are, are really frightening because the average person just doesn't have the power to do much mm. about it. And most of the cases, and the scary thing, as I was researching my book, I was reading about all these cases and, you know, cases like mine and none of them had happy endings. They were all like, oh, I lost my house. Oh, I went to jail. Oh, I, you know, they were, I'm, I'm destitute now. Um, pretty much everybody was destroyed by the state. And, um, and that's usually what happens. So for me, I was, I was certainly not 
optimistic about what was going to happen. I mean, I did the best I could with it and I wasn't going to not fight for, for, for the, for mm. our property here, but I, I, we were very prepared to like, yeah, I think we might lose everything. It could happen. Um, but, uh, whew, I'm really thankful that that's not what happened. Mm. Mm, totally. Yeah. What wonderful. What a, a good story with a happy ending. Yeah. Uh, I, it's good to hear that you, that at least one of those cases had a happy ending. Yes. Yes. Well, Luke, thank you so much for taking the time. I hope you have a great rest of your vacation. And just so the audience knows, when Luke comes back, uh, we wanted Luke was going to record a story here, but as you can hear, his audio is not great. Um, but he's going to record a couple of stories right when he gets back. Um, so definitely stay tuned. I know he's got some great stories coming up. Um, anyway, thank you. Thank you all for listening. Uh, hope to see you next week. 